Hi, I'm Charles Critchell, and I'm the founder and editor of Fair City, a London-based city transport think tank, which aims to advocate that city transport can be more accessible, equitable, and sustainable for the users it serves. I'd like to start by welcoming you to our Insight series, where in each episode, a guest and I will discuss how COVID-19 has specifically impacted the transport network and urban fabric of a global city, and the ways in which this could develop both during and beyond the current pandemic. Today we're discussing Auckland, New Zealand's largest city and the fourth of our global cities. Known as the city of sales, Auckland is situated on New Zealand's North Island on a narrow strip of land between the Tasman Sea and the Pacific Ocean. The city has a modern day population of just over 1.6 million people and is consistently ranked as one of the world's most livable cities owing to its prosperity, climate and cultural diversity. I'm fortunate to be joined today by George Weeks, George is a principal urban designer in the city centre unit of the Auckland Design Office and is responsible for co-authoring the recently released Auckland City Centre Master Plan. Hi George, how are you and can you let us know where you're joining us from? Good morning Charles, I'm very well, thank you. And I'm joining from a beautiful autumn day in Auckland, New Zealand. Can you briefly explain a bit about Auckland's geography and the ways in which people navigate the city? Auckland's geography is remarkable. It is a very beautiful city because it's located on a dormant volcanic field. I can see about two or three volcanoes from my property. There are more than 50 volcanoes in Auckland. It has an extraordinary landscape defined by water. You've got a very thin isthmus, mainly made up of the volcanic field, which forms the city centre and much of the original city. Auckland has a west coast and an east coast port. It's a very, very narrow city at two isthmuses. The Auckland region itself is large. It is predominantly rural. The city sits towards the southern end of of the Auckland region. The characteristics of how people get around in Auckland are very much defined by its geography. There is a lot of water, so plenty of people get around by ferry. There's also fairly low development densities, so a large amount of travel in Auckland takes place by private car. Along the railway lines in Auckland, you get people traveling by train and there's a comprehensive bus network as well. There's quite a lot of walking, particularly in the city center and inner city, which I'll get onto in a bit. Walking is very important in the denser parts of Auckland. And there's also a small but rapidly growing proportion of people who cycle around Auckland for commuting, leisure and utility, as well as recreation. And this is seen throughout the city. Auckland city centre itself is small. It's about two by two kilometres, so comparable in size to the City of London. And it generates about 7.5% of New Zealand's economy. Auckland's transport 
transport system is quite focused on the city centre. It's where most of the bus routes go, it's where most of the ferry routes go, it's where the rail system goes. So if you look at New Zealand's response to COVID-19, which owing to its effectiveness has been praised by countries across the globe, can you briefly explain the measures which the national government has taken? New Zealand, I think it's worth saying, has been rated the top country in the world for the quality of its COVID-19 communications. And this has been evident from quite early on. In March, the government introduced a four-level response. So from level one to level four. Level one being preparation for COVID-19 restrictions and level four being a full lockdown. We entered a level four lockdown in late March and this was really quite strict. You were instructed to stay in your home, only leave your house for exercise, to go food shopping, to go to a chemist or for medical attention, and that was pretty much it. And this lasted for just over four weeks until the end of April. We then moved down to a level three restriction, which was not much different to level four, but people were allowed to expand their isolation bubble a bit, see close family, and one or two more types of businesses were able to open. Since Thursday, we've been at level two, which means that the disease is contained. I think 94% of people who had COVID-19 in New Zealand have recovered, but there's still a risk of community transmission. Many more shops are open, but they have to maintain social distancing. And you can see more people, but gatherings of more than 10 are prohibited. And you can travel around the country, but international travel is still extremely limited. We're going to be in level two for a few weeks. The idea is to enable the country to begin to function more normally while enabling tracing, testing and other measures to reduce the risk of a second COVID-19 surge and to enable us to progress to level one, which means the disease is contained in New Zealand, hopefully within the next few weeks or months. Do you think that New Zealand's long experience of biosecurity and its strong civil defence have been important factors in enabling it to respond to the crisis more effectively than many other countries? I think one of the risks that New Zealand is always aware of is the risk of disasters happening through biosecurity breaches. It's a country where agriculture is a very, very major part of the economy. And as a result, anyone going into New Zealand is checked quite rigorously to ensure that they're not bringing contaminants into the country. So that has meant that the country has a, has a long record of keeping track of movement into and out of it. And the New Zealand government has a uh, civil defence system that is well geared up for natural disasters. This is a country that experiences fairly reasonable volcanic eruptions earthquakes and other natural hazards. Geologically, we're a very young country. And this has enabled quite a coordinated response to happen quite promptly. And this has helped to stop COVID-19 in its tracks. If we now turn to Auckland's urban realm, many have been surprised at the speed and effectiveness of Auckland's urban response to the virus. 
Can you explain a bit about New Zealand's Transport Authority's Innovating Streets for People initiative? The New Zealand Transport Agency, the NZTA, is the um, national authority for transport. And earlier this year, they launched a $7 million scheme for innovating streets for people. So innovating streets is all about working out how to transform streets in a way that's quicker, simpler and cheaper. And really the centerpiece of innovating streets for people is tactical urbanism, um, by which we mean pilot schemes using temporary interventions, temporary materials and so on, to transform how a street works. Uh, for example, creating a low traffic neighborhood or temporary cycleway or wider pavements. And the idea of innovating streets for people is that by enabling street changes to be made quickly and cheaply, you can really test the effects of different interventions, see if they work, and see how you can apply these lessons elsewhere in New Zealand. One of the criteria for um, innovating streets for people is that there must be a pathway to permanence. You can't use the money to fund a permanent scheme. You must use it in a way that's able to provide a pilot scheme that could be permanent later on based upon the outcomes. And going on from that, what's significant about innovating streets for people is that it demands that the authority that is carrying out any measure under this is measuring it. They need to define success, they need to identify the need, they need to measure how well it works, count the benefits, and determine whether the intervention has been successful. So it's a very but it's very much an experiment. In relation to COVID-19, this has brought forward quite urgently the need for changes in streets to enable physical distancing, predominantly wider footways. And so while the time scale for innovating streets for people is aimed at projects that can be complete by June 2021 and are fixed deadlines for submitting applications. The use of innovating streets for people approaches for COVID-19 responses that can happen as road controlling authorities and councils develop ideas. Again, with the same principles of understanding what problem you're trying to solve and how your proposed intervention is going to solve it. So for those who don't know, could you briefly explain what tactical urbanism is? If you were to sum it up in a very short tweet, it's lighter, quicker, cheaper. It, it means changing streets by lighter. I mean, interventions that don't require you to dig or to move curbs or drains. That's expensive and it takes time. So what can you place on the surface of the road to change how it works? So that might involve paint. It might involve products like place kit, which we've used in the city centre, which can take the form of planters seating and so on and it's what can you really implement quickly off the back of a lorry really which brings us on to the second point about quicker you, you spend a decent amount of time on the design that's important but then you can implement it overnight or over a series of evenings which means firstly from a project perspective 
it's quicker to do. And secondly, it's much, much less disruptive. And this is particularly important for city centre streets where you have businesses, often owner-occupied, who are not terribly keen on the idea of many months of disruption. A quicker approach means that you do not have to have the penalty of disruption for having your streets changed. And then quicker, because you're doing three days work rather than nine months work, it's a lot cheaper. And because you're not having to do civil engineering, and also because the design is a pilot and can be adapted, it, again, it means that it's cheaper. You do not have to design for an end state that cannot be changed. You can implement it to the best of your ability and then modify it, which is a cheaper way of changing a design than having to dig up something after it's been built traditionally. Can you now give us an example of how tactical urbanism has been used in Auckland specifically? A good recent example was a street in Auckland city centre called Sales Street, which is a side street off one of the major roads that crosses Auckland city centre. Now, Sales Street has a junction with Wellesley Street, and traditionally it's been quite a challenge to people walking across it. It's a very wide junction. Cars would come zooming down Wellesley Street and turn left into Sales Street very, very fast, and it, it did not feel safe. So a tactical urbanism approach was used to tighten the geometry of the Sales Street, Wellesley Street interchange. Uh, planter boxes were used to make the road junction tighter, and then paint was used on the surface of the road to highlight the changes, emphasize what was now pedestrian space. And this was a combination of uh, blue wavy lines at the junction edge, and then a series of colored dots on a pedestrian desire line. And the main aim of the Sales Street, Weather the Street intervention was to reduce speeds and to improve safety. And what's significant is that the number of vehicles on Sales Street that were speeding, that is going over 50 kilometers an hour, declined by 81% owing to the new street design. It also reduced the pedestrian crossing time of this junction by about 40% compared to the previous design. And the, the time that people had to wait to cross the junction dropped by 43%. So this was a very straightforward intervention that has brought about significant improvements for safety and accessibility on an important junction in Auckland city centre. Yeah, that's a good example. And one observation I'd like to make is that the pandemic seems to be enabling the city to carry out further experimentation as opposed to forced experimentation, as is evident in many other global cities. What do you think the value of this is? The pandemic has really highlighted the need for sufficient space for people walking in city centre streets. And this has really meant that Auckland has had to think quite carefully about what its streets can do to enable physical distancing. This was more significant at levels four and level three. There, there were areas of streets that were delineated with traffic cones temporarily under level four and three to enable physical distancing while walking. But some of these measures have now actually been removed in level two. 
within the city centre itself in, in Queen's Street, which is the main city centre street in Auckland, interventions are underway to enable physical distancing in Queen's Street. And this is part of a wider programme for Queen Street and the city centre. So the pandemic has highlighted the need for these interventions, but in some cases, as in Queen Street, these were necessary anyway in relation to the agreed master plan for the city centre and also for accommodating public transport. In the introduction, I introduced you as working at the Auckland Design Office, which has undoubtedly been key in pioneering tactical urbanism measures in the city, and as you say, long before the outbreak of the pandemic. Can you explain the role of the ADO and why the city required these types of interventions when it formed back in 2014? The ADO in its current form dates from 2014, I think, but Auckland has had a design champion role since 2007. And the Auckland Design Office was really introduced to address the general discontent with the quality of architecture and urban design happening in Auckland in the late 90s and early 2000s. The Auckland Design Office has about 50 staff. Uh, About two-thirds of the Auckland Design Office staff are engaged in design review, which is a statutory process in New Zealand, and this is aiming to improve the quality of design and planning in Auckland. There's a urban design strategy team that looks at urban design on a long-term horizon across all of Auckland, except for the city centre, which is covered by the city centre design unit, which is where I work. In relation to tactical urbanism, the city centre unit is small, and our key strength is our ability to collaborate with other organisations across the city centre, including Auckland Transport and including the, the businesses and residents in the city centre. One of the examples of tactical urbanism that we've done recently in the city centre is High Street, which is a major shopping street in Auckland city centre. There's been a long-term ambition to pedestrianise High Street or to make it a shared space and this has never quite happened. It's quite controversial and quite expensive and as discussed a few questions back, transforming streets can be very disruptive for quite a long time. So what we advocated in 2019 was a co-design approach using tactical urbanism where we engaged directly with the businesses to work out what their priorities were. And what was interesting is that while the perception was that people thought car parking was important, that actually was not as much of a big deal as anyone thought. High Street, I think at the time, had 24 car parking spaces on street. It's a a narrow one-way street, which until recently had car parking on site, on each side and a multi-storey car park at one end. And that's a very large car park with about 900 spaces. Anyway, um, occupiers were not as worried about car parking as we suspected. Their main worry was the time taken for disruption. So what was done was that a um, system of pop-up footway widening was developed to replace some of the car parking spaces with wider footways. High Street has narrow footways, 
and this was aiming to provide people with more space, not just to walk up and down the street, but also to see what's in the shops. Other car parking spaces were reallocated for loading and delivery. Shops need to get their goods in and get their rubbish out. And loading and delivery was always very difficult on High Street because of the limited amount of loading spaces and the space given over to car parking. But with less space for car parking, this meant more space available for loading and delivery. It also allowed space to improve the environment with trees in planter pots and also space for cycle racks, allowing more people to park by bicycle. And the first phase of interventions on High Street were installed over three successive nights. And almost immediately, you could start to see the difference. There were shopkeepers who were commenting, the first time I actually can see the window display in my shop, which I spend an hour every week getting to look nice. So a second and third phase of the high street temporary intervention has been delivered. And this is a real success story in terms of temporary interventions that deliver benefits almost immediately, which allow people to experience firsthand what the new street is like. This brings me on to a wider point, which is that human beings are very, very empirical. We really are much, much better at understanding an environment from being in it than from reading about it or seeing a rendering or presentation. And so the easiest way to enable people to experience a new environment is to create the new environment and allow them to be in it. And tactical urbanism is a very, very valuable tool for that. If we now look at the governance of the city more broadly, the last decade has been especially important in improving the quality of the city's built environment, as we've just been discussing. Can you tell us a bit about the nature of the city's governance and the policy role it has played in helping to shape the city? Auckland is the largest unitary authority in the Southern Hemisphere. Auckland Council is responsible for creating the Auckland Plan, which is the statutory vision for the whole city. It's also responsible for the Auckland Unitary Plan, which essentially is the rules that deliver the Auckland Plan. And these have both been published fairly recently. The Auckland Plan dates from 2018. The Auckland Unitary Plan dates from 2016. And what's significant is that Auckland's only been a unitary authority for just about 10 years. It became a unitary authority in 2010. Prior to that, it was made up of four separate cities in the centre, the south, the west and the north, linked by a regional council. So this means for the first time we have one plan for the entire Auckland region. And the Auckland Planning Committee is responsible for endorsing and signing off the statutory plan and the area plans and frameworks. We now turn our attention to consider how governance has informed the development of transport in Auckland. As in 1999, a decade before the city transitioned to a unitary authority, the Auckland Regional Growth Forum published the Regional Growth Strategy, which established the necessity for the city to adopt a compact urban form, predominantly served by passenger transport. Can you first describe how the car shaped the city, and then explain the increasingly important role of public transport? Absolutely. 
what, what's interesting about Auckland is that we did originally have a very high public transport mode share. To, to really understand Auckland's transport, you've got to go back to the early 20th century. Auckland built its first tram line in 1902, which is only a year after London built its first tram line. And by the uh, 1940s, the city had an extremely extensive tram system covering the entire built area. Owing to Auckland's geography, I think it was the world's only coast-to-coast -coast tram going from the city centre to the other port, Onohunga. And I mean, this is not very much different to Los Angeles or other American cities where there was an extremely well-connected rail system throughout the urban area. And then this changed during World War II and after it, a plan emerged in the 1950s for a comprehensive system of urban motorways in Auckland. And even by the standard of the 1950s, this was an extremely pro-car approach. And this informed development in Auckland, a lot up until the 1990s. Um, in, in the 50s, Auckland's population was about a quarter of a million. And you can get away with high levels of motorization with a smallish city and low car ownership. But that does not work now in Auckland, which has a population about 1.7 million and rising rapidly. I mean, the Auckland tram system had been one of the densest in the world, but it was completely dismantled by 1956 and public transport fell steadily from then on. There was a bit of a blip during the oil crisis in the mid 1970s. And then public transport fell during the 80s and into the 90s as petrol stayed cheap. Cars became a lot cheaper as second-hand imports became more and more available. Auckland, sorry, New Zealand deregulated its buses based on the British model in the early 1990s, which was a really not a successful move. And I mean, by the early 90s, I think this was the nadir of public transport in Auckland. And also there, there was recognition that things needed to change for the city to function properly. But it takes a long time between recognition and changes in policy and actual changes actually happening on the ground. The pandemic has thrown the future of public transport into doubt in many global cities. Why is it so important that Auckland continues to invest in public transport? The issue with public transport in Auckland is, is it is absolutely essential for the city to work. I mean, there's no city in the world with 1.7 million people that operates purely on private transport. That, that is geometrically impossible. This particularly applies to Auckland city centre, where all of the growth in trips to the city centre over the past 15 years has taken place by public transport due to significant investments in rail, in buses, and in ferry transport. Auckland city centre is prosperous in the same manner of dense urban cores as City of London, Lower Manhattan, Shinjuku. It concentrates a large number of people in a small area of space that gives you agglomeration benefits, it gives you proximity, it gives you job density, and that only is feasible if you have a public transport system to bring people into this dense urban core. So public transport in Auckland is receiving major investment. The 
City Rail Link currently underway is the biggest construction project ever to happen in New Zealand. And this will double the number of people within a half hour train journey of Auckland city centre. And that's before you consider the effects of transit oriented developments taking place at the stations along the Auckland rail network, thus further increasing the catchment of Auckland's public transport system. Given the city's high levels of investment in public transport in the last 10 to 15 years, would you say that it's a case of public transport simply being too big to fail? I think it's more than being too big to fail. It's simply essential for the city to work. The Auckland rail system almost got shut down in the early 90s, which seems incredible now. And it only became saved when the city was able to buy at scrap value a fleet of diesel passenger trains from Perth, which had recently electrified its passenger rail system. And this delivered a new lease of life to the Auckland passenger rail network. And the growth that ensued with better trains and a more frequent service provided the confidence to build Rittermart Station in Auckland City Centre, which was finished in 2003. And that cost almost quarter of a million dollars. And I mean, rail use in Auckland then was still reasonably low. And there was quite a lot of scepticism that it would ever be popular. But fast forward to the present and at least pre-COVID-19, Brittemont Station is more or less at capacity during the morning peak, hence the need for the city rail link. And I mean, just as tactical urbanism use of pilot projects give confidence for larger investments, so did the use of second-hand rail rolling stock from Perth give confidence that rail had a future in Auckland, which gave confidence to the investment in Brittemart Station in the city centre, which in turn has prompted much, much more growth of rail and investment in the city centre. And that in turn prompted the investment in the city rail link, which is going to turn Brittemart Station from a terminus into a through station. Okay, and if we now turn from rail to buses, and specifically the city's diesel-powered buses, which have been widely criticised by residents owing to their role in contributing to the city's poor air quality levels, what then are the main barriers preventing the city from electrifying its bus fleet, both further and faster? The main barrier is cost. An electric bus costs more to buy than a diesel bus. It's cheaper to run and cheaper to maintain, but it costs more to buy. And because bus growth has happened rapidly and recently in Auckland, the city has a large fleet of new buses owned by the various bus operators in Auckland, and they are quite a long way from retirement. I mean, to to put it into perspective, a few years ago, Auckland did not have a single double-decker bus. And now they're absolutely everywhere. The the transformation in Auckland's bus network has happened very, very quickly. And a lot of that's happened since 2013 when the buses were re-regulated, thus allowing Auckland Transport to specify routes and frequencies and really develop a much better connected network. And that has developed into the Auckland new bus network, which was really completed last year. During this time, we also introduced hop cards which is a contactless payment system for integrated ticketing similar to london's oyster cards 
and that again has improved the connectivity of public transport in Auckland. So to come back to your original question, the main obstacle I believe is cost and the fact that we have a large fleet of fairly new diesel buses. That said, under the C40 commitments, Auckland has committed to only buying electric buses from 2025. So between now and then, that will be one of the challenges to address to work out how best to do that, how best to pay for them, and how best to operate them. But initial tests of electric buses in Auckland have been successful, but these are just tests. It is not a full-scale transport mode yet. Let's now move away from public transport and look at other modes, namely walking and cycling, which have seen a resurgence in many global cities, owing to both stringent social distancing measures and a desire to forgo a return to car dependency. What do you consider the role of cycling to be in the future of the city's mobility landscape? Cycling, I think, has a very important role to play in Auckland. There's a number of reasons for that. We're we're not a dense city. We're quite spread out. And plenty of distances that are a bit too far to walk are eminently bikeable. And that means not just point-to-point distances themselves, but also accessing the rapid transit network, so accessing railway stations, buses, and the northern busway. What's really changed the cycling landscape in Auckland from an individual user's perspective has been the availability of electric bikes. Now, these have been around in one way or another for over a decade, but I think really in the past five years, they've become much more common in Auckland. They're much easier to buy, they're they're much cheaper to buy, although they are still quite an investment, and many more people have them, and there's many more places to park them and charge them. And the electric bike is perfect for Auckland. This is a city that's spread out, as I mentioned. It also has quite hot weather, and also it's very hilly, owing to its topography and the 50-odd volcanoes that make up the Auckland landscape. So an electric bike, which is faster, easier to ride, and basically irons out hills, is a perfect transport mode for use in Auckland. So I think bikes have a a big future. The main challenge is the quality of the street environment. We have some good cycleways and some good shared paths, but they do not form a a comprehensive universally accessible citywide network. What was interesting during the level four lockdown for COVID-19 was that with the significant drop in general motor traffic and the instructions to only exercise in your local neighborhood, there was a lot more neighborhood cycling all over Auckland as people took advantage of almost traffic-free streets and were really wanting to explore them by bike, often as a family unit. And I would say the same for walking as well. The amount of people you would see effectively promenading around their neighbourhood on a nice afternoon during level four lockdown was quite significant. I mean, normally people walking around suburban Auckland tend to do so if they have a dog and they're taking the dog out. But you did not need a dog during level four lockdown. People would really get out and explore the neighbourhoods on foot, me included. And I think this has given a lot of people a lot of a sense of the importance of accessible, pleasant 
neighborhood streets and neighborhoods generally. However, as we return to level two and a more normal situation of work patterns and travel patterns, I think we're going to see a lot of reversion back to how people traveled before. If we just stay with the theme of health and the environment, Auckland, like many global cities, struggles with poor air quality. Can you explain the main reasons for this and what the city's authorities are doing to tackle it? I think the worst air quality in Auckland is concentrated along transport routes. I mean, Auckland is not a city of heavy industry. It's not near anywhere that has heavy industry. And the main source of air pollution in the city comes from transport. And so this is general traffic, buses, heavy goods vehicles, and also ships. We're a large port. So you get concentrations of air pollution in Auckland city centre, particularly the Queen Street Valley, which forms a north-facing bowl in the heart of Auckland. And Queen Street Valley is a worry for pollution because you've got this concentration of bad air quality, and you've also got the densest employment centre in New Zealand, and you've also got the densest residential area in New Zealand. About 35,000 people live in Auckland city centre, and that number's going up fast. So we have a commitment to C40 cities to deliver a significant area of fossil fuel-free streets in Auckland city centre by Auckland 2030, which we have the Queen Street Valley identified as the best place to do that. We also have Auckland's Climate Action Framework, which is a plan for mitigating and reducing our impact on climate change. And that, again, specifies as one of its outcomes, a fossil fuel free city centre street network, again, focusing on the Queen Street Valley. And this brings me on to the Auckland City Centre Master Plan, which was published online last month. And one of the key components of the Auckland City Centre Master Plan is the Access for Everyone concept, which uses a series of low traffic neighbourhoods and a strategic approach to management and access of city centre streets to really deliver a pedestrian priority Queen Street, again, addressing air pollution at source. And finally, the city has experienced considerable population growth in the last decade, with an estimated 35,000 people now living in the city centre. What measures does the recently published City Centre Master Plan propose to ensure that Auckland continues to be regarded as one of the world's most livable cities in years to come? One of the new components of the 2020 City Centre Master Plan is an outcome that focuses on the city centre's residential neighbourhoods. By way of background, the Auckland City Centre Master Plan has 10 thematic outcomes, and these are concerned with access, inclusivity, the environment, and other priorities. And these relate to the Auckland Plan, but apply them specifically to the city centre. And one of the new outcomes that we added was this one around city centre neighbourhoods, acknowledging the importance of the city centre as a place to live. What does this mean in practice? This means really considering about what the requirements are for streets and spaces in Auckland city centre. I mean, for a city centre resident, I mean, it's no use having a park 10 minutes walk away. What's important is what is your street like? 
when you leave your front door? What's it immediately like outside your building? Are there places to walk to nearby? And this particularly applies to very young people in the, in the city centre. There are more and more people raising families here. And also it applies to older people living in the city centre, where proximity is very, very important. This, again, brings me back to access for everyone and the emphasis on low traffic neighbourhoods, which really are aiming to make the city centre a place to go to, not a place to drive through. And that's it. So thank you very much, George, for joining us today. Thank you very much, Charles. Pleasure to talk to you this morning. And I'm very much looking forward to talking to you again, maybe in the next year from now, to really examine how Auckland is progressing in its desire to continue to be one of the most livable cities in the world. So just a reminder that you can learn more about the important work which George and the Auckland Design Office do by heading to aucklandccmp.co.nz while you can also follow him on Twitter at GeorgeWeeks2014. I'd like to thank you for joining us, and if you did enjoy today's episode, please do take the time to leave a comment, tell your friends, and of course, please do subscribe. Finally, please join us again for our next episode, where we'll be taking a look at how another global city is responding to the transport, urban, and environmental challenges posed by COVID-19.